It sounds like it's going to work. Yeah. Welcome to Forbidden Conversations. On the line this week, we have all the way from California, Valerie Shin. Val, welcome on board. Thank you. Excited to be here with you today. I, pr- I appreciate it. I know you've got a very busy schedule, so we'll just dive straight in. I feel like I got to know you reasonably well over our time on Forbidden Conversations, but I feel like I only just scraped the surface. And uh, one of the questions I always like to start off our conversations with on this channel is, you know, tell me a bit, tell me how your childhood was, how to describe it, what was it? I had it written down before. Tell me how your childhood was similar to the average Americans and how was it dissimilar? It's a fun question to start. So just to give people a little bit of context on my childhood, I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. My dad was a postdoc at UW-Madison when I was born at age three when my sister was only two months old. We moved as a family to Davis, California, where we lived for the next six years. And then when I was nine, moved back to Madison, where I lived until I went to college. So I would say one of the things that was similar was just I had a lot of fun being a child. I feel like childhood is in many ways a pretty magical moment where everything feels new. Going to school for the first time, getting on a plane for the first time, hanging out with your grandparents, which I got to do a decent amount because they came and visited, eating new food, going to a restaurant, just the phase of life where everything is novelty, I thought was both pretty special and then also fortunately pretty similar to what a lot of others get to experience. I think the biggest thing that was different was just that I grew up in this academic setting. My dad is a professor. And I got to hang out with many other professors who taught lots of interesting topics. Everything around our whole community was about learning and education. And it wasn't until I got to college and saw that some of my peers were interacting with professors for the first time and found them intimidating that I realized how unique and special it was that I just got to experience that casually throughout my whole life. What did your dad teach? He teaches chemistry. Interesting. And... You know, because like obviously, when I think of chemistry, I never got past year twelve or like senior year at high school, so I don't really know much about it. What like, how does how does you know someone who's a scientist as a parent? Do you feel that that like flowed into your growing up the way they see the world, or does it what's just stay in mind? Is, so yeah, what's funny about it is he when he was early on in his career taught intro to organic chemistry, which is supposed to be one of the hardest classes. And you know, breaks a lot of people's pre-med dreams. That was actually my worst grade in college of all the classes that I took. So clearly the specific subject matter expertise didn't transition over. I think that the things that I learned were just a general intellectual curiosity and an interest in interacting with really smart people that were working on hard problems and trying to push the frontier in whatever they were doing. And then I think I also just saw a version of what life can be like and what parenting and families can be like because my dad was actually around a lot. His job gave him the flexibility to be a real big presence in our life. And he was always there kind of teaching us how to think and how to see the world. Yeah, I can understand how, you know, it's one of those things that only in retrospect can you understand that people who have a different life than you. Because you, I think most people grow up thinking that their lives are very similar to everyone else's, unless you're, you know, living in the jungle or, or your family's like famous or something, you know, and like real famous, not just TikTok famous. 
so yeah, it was obviously a big change when you go to when you start speaking to the professor the first time when you go to college. I can understand how you're like, oh my god, like how do you how do you deal with this relationship? Because it's different to like seeing your like year nine maths teacher. It's like they're the real deal. But in other ways, they're also humans as well. Like you could be the world's foremost expert on chemistry, but you're not the you're still the father of Val and her sister at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I think recognizing that people in any role are really just people has been an interesting life lesson. I learned it early on with professors. And then I found in my job now, I work in venture capital and interact with some of the most successful wealthy individuals in the world. Often they're investors in our fund or investors in peer fund or just generally in this ecosystem. And when you start to talk to them a little bit, you realize that they also are just people with various hopes and dreams and insecurities and concerns and quirks. And that lens of, oh, everyone is a little bit human, I think is pretty interesting. I like to talk to everyone about very personal kind of non-work stuff, even in work context, because I feel like building that relationship is what makes it interesting. And then you also get to learn, wow, every person has their own quirks and stories. Were your parents migrants to America? Yes. So my parents were born in China and then both moved here as adults. Well, so what was that experience like? Because you're obviously not the only one in our cohort who had um, Chinese-born parents who then migrated. And I feel, you know, I know a lot of Chinese people who, you know, a lot of people left China in the 80s and came to places like the US and Australia for a different life. And I was just wondering, it's, 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 it's a very large group of people, but they all have such very different ideas of what it means to be Chinese. And I was just like, want to hear a bit about that, you know, cross-culturally, like, there isn't, I mean, I don't even know if there is a Chinatown in Madison. So what was what was your parents' experience like in China? Like, did they ever share it with you or is that kind of a black box? Yeah, so there was no Chinatown in Madison, but there was a pretty strong Chinese community. I find in most college towns in America, there's a strong Chinese community. And so I spent a lot of time in that community growing up. I went to Chinese school, which was a every Sunday you would go and just learn reading and writing and try to make sure that that part of culture doesn't go away. I would go to parties or parties as a strong word, maybe potlucks, evening gatherings with others in that little world. And so it was great to have a way to make the language a part of my life and generally interact with others with that shared experience. I think that everyone who comes has their own story. And there is just such a big difference whether you're coming here because you're getting a PhD or otherwise getting educated versus you're being sent by a company to do a specific job versus you're escaping something in your home country. In some ways, everyone is moving in search of a better life, but what kind of better life you're searching for can fundamentally change that experience. For me, one of the most important piece of it was just the immigrant mindset of there has been hard times in the past. There might be hard times in the future. Let's not live a big, grandiose, wasteful life, but rather work hard, think about delayed gratification, be frugal, prepare for the future. I think you can get that set of mindsets from a number of different contexts, but being an immigrant or having immigrant parents is one of the surest ways from what I've seen to just be responsible in a sometimes risk averse kind of way that 
makes it a little bit difficult, I think, sometimes to really think about dreaming big and taking those big leaps, but at least reminds you, okay, we can get through any sorts of tough circumstances because we've been through tougher ones in the past. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to that. I really like your point about how everyone that came from China had their different own different reasons to do it, which is quite different from when I think of potentially groups like Cuban immigrants, for example, who I think 80% of them were, they left for one reason only, to get out of Cuba as quickly as possible. And there was obviously some people who left China for you know fear of their lives, but also people like your dad, people like Dave's parents, you know, who were who didn't leave because they there's pull factors more than push factors. It wasn't like, if I don't leave, I'm going to die. It was, I'm going to continue my studies. I'm going to continue my, you know, you know what, what I want, I can't achieve in China, but I can achieve in America. So that kind of explains how there's such a different, so different, so many more different views. So I, you explain that really well. Yeah. And I think there's also different phases of time, right? There have been people that have been immigrating to the US from China for more than 100 years. And each wave has many different reasons. In addition to at any particular moment, there might be different reasons. Because I'm guessing your parents didn't come over to gold mine. Fortunately, they did not come here thinking that they could mine for gold. Well, Bitcoin now, I guess it's probably the new one. So just... Just you and your sister, is that right? Correct. Correct. And you're the oldest? Yes. My sister's three years younger than me. And what is she doing? She's working at Apple. So she's studied computer science and is working on one of their AI machine learning teams. You have a close relationship? We do, yeah. I think we're pretty different in some of our personalities, but we've both lived in the Bay Area now for about a decade, and that's allowed us to spend a good amount of time with each other, even as adults. We lived together as roommates for a year when we were both doing master's degrees at Stanford, which is a pretty special opportunity. Amazing. Because I've got two younger sisters, and they would now probably describe each other as their best friend. But it hasn't always been that way. I think for the first like 15 years, it was definitely a competitive relationship and a an adversarial relationship but now they it's really mellowed over time and now they've got really close i don't so think we ever had too much of an adversarial or competitive relationship we were enough years apart that we were almost never directly competing against each other for anything yeah. and i don't think that we were aggressive and fighting or hostility but i do think that you know as children growing up there's probably more tensions because you fight over who's taking up more room on the sofa or <laughs> who made a mess that the other person got in trouble for whereas now as adults there's just less of those tensions because you live your separate lives and you interact with each other in ways that somehow work for the two of you in whatever circumstances you're in. So sometimes that's traveling together. Sometimes that's interacting with each other's friend groups. Sometimes that's just hanging out one-on-one. You talk about the topics that make sense and help each other in ways that make sense for your given relationship without being forced to live every day together, no matter what anyone is going through. Very much so. When you're a child, and we'll move on to college soon, but What was the first thing you realized you were good at? I think I realized fairly early on that I was good at math. Yeah. And I distinctly remember, so when I was very young, in kindergarten, I was in a class that was a mixed kindergarten and first grade classroom. And then I was telling my mom that we would split up into two separate groups for math. And I showed her the kindergarten math, and she thought that it was too easy, and it was things that she had already taught me while 
beforehand. So she proposed that next time we split for math, I should ask the teacher if I could do math with the first graders. So I awkwardly raised my hand and said, my mom thinks I should do math with the first graders. And then the teacher kind of just rolled her eyes at me and told me to go do my own thing with the kindergartners. And I remember being mortified that I had to ask and also being rejected. But that was a moment where I thought, hey, you know, I probably can do this math at a level that's a little bit higher than what I'm supposed to be. Yeah, no, I I get that. And one of those things with Math, from my experience, maths is a subject that benefits more than any other subject from streaming in terms of ability because it's ever it's very modular. You've got to learn part one before you can learn part two. You can't, you know, make it up on the spot. And maths can be – I remember we started streaming maths class when I went to middle school. I remember I went to an all-boys school for middle school, and it was – you know, year, year seven was like, that was the, that was like the trial, it was preseason. And in year eight, they streamed mathematics and they were, the school was very big on encouraging competition. They thought, it, I think they didn't say it, but having read the book Top Dog, they were big believers in the concept of aretas, which is, you know, the Greek word for inner fire. The whole idea is that people, when they compete against each other, it inspires them to perform higher. And the, you know, I don't remember reading this book about it and it's, talks about how, you know, why are so many Olympic world records broken in the final? Because you think you'd never break it then because, you know, you're in a different country, you're sleeping in a different bed, you know, you might be going on off at like 10 p.m. at night, you've got the cameras around, you've already done a heat that morning. Yeah, why is that moment, the moment that your body worked about to the point that you will try so hard that you will break the record that no one else ever has ever done? So in middle school, they said there is going to be the maths exam some of you are going to get into A maths and some of you guys are going to get into B maths. I had a good friend of mine, Nick Fabry, who we were very competitive with each other, but best friends at the same time. And it wasn't just like you just checked your emails and you found out if you were at A maths or B maths. It came out on the Excel spreadsheet. And they just had the line. They're like, if you score over this, you know, just a rank order and the first 60 kids they get to go to AMATS. And that was like my first experience of like the high pressure scenario that I'd been in. And then actually make it into AMATS by like one trigonometry question answered correctly. It's that feeling of catharsis. It's hard to, it's hard to beat. So yeah, I guess that was my first like high pressure experience I had in high school. Is there any high pressure experiences that came to you when you were a younger girl? Well, we had a math competition program in middle school. It was called Math Counts. So it's a nationwide math competition that various middle schools are able to enter. And in my middle school, at least at the time, we had a pretty rigorous training program. And so we didn't want to let everyone in. I say we, I mean, whoever decided on how this was organized decided that rather than allowing anyone to be part of it, every year they would choose four to six new students from sixth grade and allow them to be in this math counts training program, which would then do weekly practice sessions and then ultimately intern to the competition. And there were probably close to 100 kids who signed up for that math counts entrance test. And so it was really high pressure because it was this program that, you know, me and all my friends wanted to get into. And this one test would determine whether or not you're going to get in to a degree that I think college applications in the U.S. aren't 
which is probably for the better. You know, there's no one test that determines your fate, but this was this one test that determined whether you get into this thing that in hindsight probably didn't matter, but at the time felt so important. But the gal cow. Yeah, the gal cow is very scary to me compared to the way we do college admissions. Just, I mean, actually just a random thought. I recently decided to take the LSAT just for fun. I was being a little bit silly, wanted a silly challenge for myself. And as I was doing it, you know, I did practice tests for a couple of weeks, handful of practice tests. And as I was taking the real test, I realized just the idiosyncrasies of whether or not I got stuck on a logic puzzle in this specific test that was the one that counted as the real one versus all the other practice ones could determine my score being off by two to three points. And if I really was going to apply to law school, that might determine which law school I go to, which then determines the whole network that I have, which then could determine whether I get the clerkship or the job that I want, and then the whole trajectory of life. Obviously, that's kind of the extreme version because there's so many different pieces of the future that are subject to chance. But it is scary to think that that one test could be so powerful in some environments. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And what I think what's really crazy about the LSAT is that it's not like the 400-yard dash that you do at NFL Combine, where you could think, oh, you've only got like four seconds to like prove to the world whether you're going to go play in the pro leagues or whether you're just going to finish your college degree with you know, a couple a busted shoulder and a couple of concussions. The thing that's so interesting about the LSAT is that it tests a skill which is disconnected from what being a lawyer is actually like. So to score really highly on the LSAT, and I haven't said it, so give me some road, is that you have to read really quickly and you have to make assumptions based off reading texts at a very high level because there's just so many questions to get through. Yeah, I don't think that the LSAT requires an unreasonably fast amount of reading. I think from my understanding of law school, and I haven't gone either, it seems like the LSAT attempts to, in a short amount of period, test your ability to think critically and reason through various topics in a way that would be roughly helpful for law school. I've also taken the GMAT and the GRE and the SAT and the ACT, and it seems like the LSAT is much more relevant for law school than any of these other non-law school specific tests are. But of course, it's still imperfect. And I think we've specifically in the US kind of made the decision that we don't want these entrance exams to be exclusively about your knowledge of the law or your knowledge of business. It's more about your intellectual aptitude and ability to think in a certain way. So it'll inevitably be imperfect. Well, the GRE and GMAT are just, and for those, why don't you explain them for those who aren't familiar with it? Okay, so the GMAT is specifically for people who are applying to business school, whereas the GRE is more of a general graduate school entrance exam. So a number of law schools and business schools will actually take the GRE as well. And what are they testing in these tests? It's a combination of reading, vocabulary, math. The math problems in the GMAT and the GRE are a little bit different. And honestly, my knowledge about them is a full decade old at this point. I took them both in college. The GRE includes some amount of questions that require knowledge of vocabulary, whereas GMAT, it's more of a kind of reading comprehension general type of sense. No, I said the GRE, and I remember it being so confused that such a big part of your application was based on like a very high level knowledge of triangles. 
you know, because there's, there's a lot of triangle questions related to it. Um, yeah. And, and, you, and, you know, it's essentially just the easiest way to do it is just answer a lot of questions. And so my understanding is that the GRE is more, the GRE GMAT is not going to detect how well you would run Pepsi. It just tests your ability to, I mean, what does test your ability? You're essentially testing a fluid intelligence, as I guess is like a light way of describing it. In some ways, I think it tests your ability to learn a random set of knowledge that someone has decided is relevant. And to a certain extent, I believe that that is an important life skill because so much of your job is you have some task, you need to figure out how to become good at it. It may be something that you naturally are good at. It may be something that you naturally like, but it might be something that you don't know how to do and don't like and don't find interesting, but it's important for the success of your company or whatever journey you're trying to go on. So you figure out a way to make it work. I think it's an interesting social phenomenon that... Oh, sorry. No, no, please go ahead. It feels like there's an interesting social phenomenon that these tests are becoming de-emphasized in various admissions processes because they're viewed to somehow be biased in a way that advantages certain people or disadvantages others, which I find to be a little bit concerning if you're replacing these tests with some sort of ambiguous other set of information that's even less standardized. In a certain way, this was the one piece of the admissions process that is universal. Everyone takes the same tests in as close as possible to the same circumstances. Whereas if you're looking at grades, well, everyone's going to totally different schools and competing against different other people. Extracurriculars, people had vastly different opportunities. Leadership, what does that even mean? How can you, in the confines of a very short application, explain what your leadership role really meant? All of those things are also imperfect in their own way. And so I find it a little bit concerning to get rid of the importance of these standardized tests without a proper replacement. No, I think that's good because like the thing with there seems to be a trend in a lot of spaces of like the deconstruction movement. But deconstruction require unless you want to live in the in the dirt, requires a construction element to come afterwards. And it seems like there has definitely been a lot of criticism. And I can understand there is some criticism that can be push towards tests, but it doesn't seem to me that the solution offered is superior. Correct. I remember listening, my favorite, I don't listen to it as much as I used to, but I used to listen to the daily all the time just because as an NPC, that's just what we do. And my fate, the one that I kept coming back to and thinking about was, you may have heard of Stuyvesant High School in New York. York. It's like the Nobel Prize factory. Like I think they've had pumped out more laureates than you know harvard princeton yale combined and they were talking about the demographics of the students who went there stuyvesant is a public high school in new york which is for our listeners which is selective entry only you don't have to be in zone you just have to pass the tests at middle school and you know the top 600 kids they get in and they were talking about like if you went to stuyvesant in the 50s or 60s every single kid was eastern european or jewish Every single one, you know. And now every single kid is East Asian or South Asian, just as you've had these migration waves come through and all these all these Eastern European and Jewish families who, you know, came straight from Europe or you know, escaped after World War Two, they've now just accelerated through the economic system. They send their kids to other schools now. 
But the big question was that the, I guess you could, you know, I'll speak politely, the racial makeup of Stuyvesant was very unreflective of the average of New York City. And, you know, when Bill de Blasio saw this, he wanted to change it. And they thought the easiest way to do that was changing the test. I mean, we need obviously a way of sharing resources. I mean, lots of people gave their exact thoughts on what should be done. We, one of the big things about economics is that it's the study of how do we distribute scarce resources. There's only so many spots in Stuyvesant. There's only so many stops at Stanford. Do you have any solutions on how do we allocate these resources better, more equitably, or in a way that would be more suitable to the way you see the world? I generally believe that the principle should be equality of opportunity rather than equality of outcome. And so if we believe that we are giving everyone an equal chance, it should be okay if the racial or gender or whatever demographic makeup of the end outcome doesn't reflect the population. It couldn't be any number of reasons that causes that. I think with education, the question becomes particularly tricky because at what point do you think, oh, we're, we're not giving everyone equality of opportunity if very early on we're tracking people into, say, like different math classes like we were talking about earlier or otherwise allowing for differences in schooling? I think my inclination would be to say we should have an objective way of allowing people into this school or any school. The closer we can get to an objective mechanism the better we are going to be for everyone because those who are actually the most qualified are more likely to get in and everyone who is accepted is going to be there as a result of merit and not as a result of whether it's legacy or sports or their parents paying for their way or them being in because they seem to meet any specific set of quota. And then once someone is in this privileged position, we don't have to question, oh, why were they here? We can all say, Everyone that is here is here because we set out this very specific and objective set of criteria and they met those criteria. I don't know enough about how you do high school or middle school admissions to know what those exact criteria are or what the cutoff should be or what the essay questions are, but it's more that principle of transparency and objectiveness that's most important to me. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. One thing I did bring up in this podcast, which I thought was quite interesting, is access to knowledge. Or awareness. And, you know, if you're anything, if your family was anything like my, my wife's family, is that the Chinese community, they, especially the mothers, have like an encyclopedic knowledge of all the successes that their relatives and friends' children have done. And they kind of see, it's like the secret whispering network. And you'll be like, you know, you'll be like, oh, I've just passed my like year eight piano exam and I was only 14 like oh well there's Timmy and he lives back in China and he did it when he was so you, you know you're laughing you know exactly what I'm talking about and they were like if you in a the Chinese community in New York everyone whether you're at your church or whether you're talking over like Chinese New Year or Yom Chao or something people are like oh your child's going to do this this is how you do it and that sort of soft power soft knowledge which you could possibly find on Reddit or like looking up the admissions page, it seems very much siloed into certain communities and not in others. Is there a way of like working around that as a disadvantage or is that just, it is what it is? I think you're definitely pointing out a real problem that 
I think is mostly solved by the fact or could mostly be solved by more transparency, right? Like the whisper networks have power because there is information that is not readily and openly available. Yeah. Because the only way to know, you know, like what is the best school or who are the best teachers or what are the tests that matter or which test prep centers should you go to or is this activity actually going to help you is through these networks right now in many situations because there is no public accepted database. And if we made that information more transparent, then whether or not you happen to know the right person becomes less important. That makes sense because it seems to me that information, you know, just from an outsider coming into America and, you know, we've thought my wife and I, you know, we want to stay here long term and have a, raise a family here and stuff. There's all this stuff like that you learn such as if you want to go to the Ivy League, you should probably learn to play squash. That seems to be you know, a real ticket. You know, I mean, squash seems like a niche sport in every part of the world, apart from a handful of cor- a tiny corner in the northeast of America. And, you know, you don't find that out until day one when you walk in and everyone else is off to the squash courts and you're sitting at home. No, I think I, I agree. It's, and I, it's one of those things which I grapple with in some ways. I'm like, how can you make these things more open? And But I also think that now that with the strength of the internet, that that information doesn't require that far of a search. Like the example I always think of is when I hear people say, overweight people are overweight because they don't understand how calories and nutrition works. And I'm like, well, that's, that's pure cope. Because even if you didn't understand how nutrition works and the most fundamental levels, all that information is out there. And I understand it's complex because, you know, it's keto Atkins, intermittent fasting, no carb, yeah, there's a lot out there. And I understand how that might not be super easy, but there are certain decisions, which are certain fundamentals that seem pretty locked in. Well, nutrition, I think, is a hard one because it is an area where we don't really know exactly what the answers are, right? I think we have some general premises that we understand. For example, if calories in are much greater than calories out, you probably will gain weight over time. But the specifics of, is it healthy to eat carbs or not? Is it healthy to eat meat or not? Is it healthy to eat many times a day or just twice a day or once a day? Is it healthy for you to eat the same things or different things? I feel like the more I read, the more I'm not sure. And what I've been taught has changed so much over the years. It's really hard to know what exactly you're supposed to do. That is true. That is, I would definitely say that in my lifetime, the no fat, you know, cutting out fat has changed. And so now, much, yeah. It's no, it's no carbs, baby. And the craziest thing, which has changed in the dietary world, men are now interested in it. When True. I was a kid, only women were interested in dieting and nutrition. And now I think men, it might be 50-50, it might even be that men on average are more interested in this kind of stuff than women. Although I, I could be wrong. Maybe we're just looking, we're all so solid now, it's hard to know. Yeah, it's hard to know the real data, but I definitely think that when you approach it, not just from the perspective of looking good and being skinny and more from a lifetime health longevity perspective, it seems like there's a broader set of audiences that you wouldn't necessarily have previously thought were image conscious that are just generally diet and nutrition conscious. Well, I guess with the 
with the males, it's there's two there's two groups that are interested in. And as you said, like there's the people who just want to look jacked and like pump up their like Instagram followers. And then the interesting group are the the optimizers. You know, they want to have, you know, the people who are tuning into Huberman every week. And I'm sure you see them all the time in the Bay Area. You know, well, the started, conversations about Huberman's podcast definitely come up all the time. Yeah. But they're like, 5.58 is the best time to wake up, you know, <laughs> and and like the amount of, you know, you're on, out on the Joe Rogan supplements. My friend gave me a box once. I took them. The sleeping ones seem to like have an impact. The day ones, I was, I mean, the placebo effect is real, so it's hard to know. But, man, there is no limit to how much money you can spend on trying to find that mental acuity or performance or that slight edge. And, you know, you're you're on ground zero. Do you see that, you know, what are, what are people doing? What's the hot new trend that's coming out of the Bay Area? Are people still in the culture hours? Well, one piece of advice I got about diets and such is that the best diet, one of the key components to it is something that you can rigorously follow for an extended period of time. So an excellent, perfectly well thought of diet, thought out diet that is only going to get you 60 percent compliance might not be as effective as something that you know imperfection would be less excellent than the other diet but that you feel like is so reasonable with your lifestyle that you can continue to do it with close to complete perfection for an extended period of time and so what i'm seeing is everyone has different versions where we've basically taken the pieces from everything that we've read and chosen to incorporate into our lives the piece that we find to be not so terrible or not so impactful in terms of your daily happiness or just living a reasonable life. And I think that for most people, that's probably a reasonable way to make your decision because ultimately, I would argue the point of longevity or being healthy is just to be happy for a longer period of time. And if you have to be super miserable in order to allow yourself to live longer, that seems a little counterproductive. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I always think at one point, have you heard of the TB12 diet? No, I haven't. TB12, created by Tom Brady. Okay. Who is, he seems like a normal dude, but very stringent about his diet. And he used to have something like three almonds a week, but only if they won, you know, and only ate... It was getting. It was entering into like the kook territory, where it would be like, I only eat bananas after the thirty eighth parallel, you know, or like I only eat plants which were grown on a Tuesday. Like I don't think he'd gone that far, but he was he was very rigorous on that. He believed that he drank so much water over his lifetime that he no longer burnt from the sun, and they didn't have to wear sunscreen. Regardless of whether you think it's a kooky or not, it's it it worked for him because he was. 40 i think and Definitely very an impressive much, physical character yeah and like even when you retire like you could tell it was kind of like if i wanted to do it again i could you know in a sport where if you make it to 30 you're essentially a walking skeleton at that point it's such a brutal game that if you can walk down the stairs each morning then that's a success after like eight years in the league. And he'd done like 20 years and obviously like in a less violent position than some others was able to still perform at a very high level. 
And he was like, oh, just, you just have to eat what I eat, and which is my three almonds and sparkling water for the rest of your life, and you'll be able to do what I do. But most people that, you know, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And the trade-off for most people, as you just alluded to, just isn't worth it. But it's interesting to see that more and more people are seeing a trade-off that is. That is. I've also Let's heard one, one other just quick interesting theory about dieting is that if you want to lose weight, most diet options, this is sort of in general terms, most diet options that restrict you from eating some sort of food will help you lose weight just because you then most likely will eat less food. So for example, you could have a diet that just says, I don't eat anything that starts with A. And that might be effective at helping you lose weight because there will just be some circumstances that you can't eat a kind of food. So I think that's a kind of cynical view towards all of the theory around it. I'm not sure how true it is. Yeah. And the exercise component is like non-zero as well. But anyway, I I can see what you what you're saying. Like you're, all you're doing is chucking a bit of sand into the gears. Correct. Yeah, and and yeah, I can understand that making a difference. Maybe I'll have to pick a pick a letter. Probably something like Z or something. Um, yes. Like, ease my way Make into it. Easy. it. I find one of the most interesting things about so when I went to school in Australia, the way we allocated the scarce resource of like colleges admissions was kind of a less extreme version of the gal cow, which is you pick your subjects, you then get scored against your peers nationally, and then you get given a percentile of how you scored, and then you can choose your university based on that percentile. And it was interesting that within it was less within it was more intra university than intra university than between universities. So, for example. Doing medicine at a mid-tier university required a higher score than studying like literature at a top university because you could do medicine at undergrad, for example. Now, what was your college selection process? Like, first of all, the college selection process and then the college admissions process because I find it so different. You know, this wasn't just like you do your algebra, you do your German, you write about King Lear, you put your pen down, you get a letter six weeks later telling you how it all went. You know, the essay the selection, the tours, like it's a completely different world. I find it super fascinating. So I thought it was very fascinating too. It was top of mind probably for multiple years. I think starting from the first day of high school, you know, everything that you do for the next three and a half years is going to be in your college admissions file. So it's making sure that you're taking the hardest possible classes and getting excellent grades. I remember that some of the admissions info sessions I went to, people would ask, do you think it's better if I take hard classes or that I get A's in the classes? And then several admissions officers will jokingly say, well, I think it's better if you take the hard classes and you get A's, right? So that for me was always just, you have to take the hardest classes. I went to a public high school in Wisconsin. It was a good public high school, but the resources were still limited enough that it was possible to take effectively all of the AP classes that were available and to actually get straight A's in all of them and to play a varsity sport, and to be a leader of a few extracurriculars that were well-rounded in the sense that you might have something more academic and then also something that's more of a volunteer activity, and you would do various other summer projects and, 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 right? Like I played piano. 
And so it was about coming up with what would look like a well-rounded package in a way that you were also still doing activities that you legitimately liked because you would be spending hundreds of hours on these activities over the course of your life. And so you would hope that you're not doing anything that's purely for the sake of someone else. And I think the benefit to how I viewed the college admissions process was you must do something great in each of X number of categories, a sport, an instrument, a volunteer activity, an extracurricular, but you didn't have to do any one particular thing. And therefore, within each of the categories, you could choose what you liked the most and also you know, what your school was good at, what you had resources to do, what you happened to be good at so that you could prove excellence in all of these categories. So that was the longer term preparation. Compared to that, the actual applications were pretty minor because they were constrained to just a couple of months. I think there it was compiling your package, understanding you have really a very limited amount of space and just depend. I've heard numbers from five to 15 minutes of an admissions officer's time and you have to tell your whole story. So everything that you've now spent years and years and years preparing, you have to summarize it in a very small amount of real estate. So how do you choose your essays and your recommendation letters and which extracurriculars you're going to fill in the box so that people can get the best sense of you in that small amount of space? So that was the whole application process. When it came to choosing, I think I had sort of grown up with this idea that if I could go to Harvard, I would. And so I was lucky enough to get in and the choosing process was not very involved. I mean, luck luck has a factor to it because I know that it's a real black box when it comes to selections. But it's not like lucky in the same way that finding 20 bucks on the ground is lucky. Why do you think they selected you? Hmm. So I have heard that if you think about a class at Harvard, they're probably admitting around 2,000 people. There might be a couple hundred people who are obvious yeses. And then the remaining 1,500 plus, you could choose the ones that you choose or you could have chosen the next 1,500 and it probably would have been okay. right? And I think I'm very aware that I was in that 1,500 camp. I was not in the 500 or couple hundred that obviously had to get in. And I think if I'm totally honest, it's that I was from a state with not that much competition and I was a big fish in a small pond and I had designed an application that was well-rounded enough to sufficiently check all of the boxes. And so if you were going to choose the top 10 or 15 high school graduates from Wisconsin in the year that I applied, it made sense that I was at the top of that list but I hadn't yet changed the world in any meaningful way, nor had I necessarily given the admissions officers reason to believe that I, more than others, was going to change the world. No, I know what you mean. It's like when you read through like the list of like Rhodes Scholars and the California Rhodes Scholars gone to like two Olympics and the North Dakota one's like a nice guy. <laughs> and I mean, that's a bit unfair on North Dakota, but yeah, no, it's state, state differences make a difference. Brilliant. I had a look at your, how was your time at Harvard? Was it what you expected? I think it was. In so many ways, it was better than what I expected. And I think that it expanded my world in a way that I wouldn't have expected going in. I had thought that this was just the place where you learn from the best professors and you interact with really smart kids. But it really exposes you to a set of jobs and worldviews and opportunities that I didn't feel I even knew existed prior to going to Harvard. And I also think that there's something really special from 
learning from the professors that are at the forefront of knowledge and then learning from the alumni and recruiters from companies that are the best in their field. I think there's something exceptional about those who are driving the world and changing things versus those who are just reacting to the world that others have created. Can you give some examples of that like eye-opening experience? Yeah, I think, you know, just the most classic example is there's a very famous economics textbook that Greg Mankiw wrote and people from all over the world learn from this textbook and he was our professor teaching this to us himself, right? Or you are at the Institute of Politics at Harvard and so many world leaders float through there. Like I met probably a dozen head of states or maybe didn't like meet personally, but saw with my own eyes a dozen head of states and saw them in conversation with other really influential people who could draw out interesting thoughts and questions from them. Or I learned that management consulting and venture capital are careers, and I saw people not so different from me get into these careers in a way that made me feel like that was possible for me. Yeah. Or, I, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I think any of my examples would kind of be of that similar ilk. It just makes you believe that anything is possible because people not that different from you were able to accomplish pretty inc- incredible things. I really like that. You know, I hear a saying, one of the worst bits of advice I've ever heard is never meet your heroes. Because a lot of people think that if you meet someone that you've held in such regard and you find out that they're just like normies, it can be quite deflating. I think the complete opposite, but for that exact reason, is that when you meet people who have done incredible things and you spend time with them and you realize that this isn't like god-given talent or they've just been like blessed you know i'm just the side character in this person's story you realized when you just watch them that it's a lot of dedication a lot of consistency a lot of discipline i mean there's obviously some things that help you know it's hard to make the nba if you're five three but meeting people who achieve things where you're like especially if you've known them for a long time and you think oh my god i can't believe so-and-so's you know at harvard I sat next to her in fourth grade and she was switched on, but I never really, th- it wasn't like you meeting like the, br- the most brilliant person imaginable, like, but you notice that they always did their homework on time and that those small things have just snowballed into something bigger and knowing that you don't have to be like anyone who you, you must understand. It's like when people will say, Oh, you went to Harvard, you must be so smart. The answer is, not you necessarily. Don't have to be smart to go. <laughs> but there's a lot of smart people yeah. in many parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, and there are plenty of smart people there, but it's not a requirement. You know, a lot of people are very disciplined, and they just tick along. You know, and just get that rubric and knock each box. I was having a look on your LinkedIn, and I, maybe this will transition a little bit from the uh, narrative structure to the idea structure. But it seems like climate was a big interest of yours when you were at Harvard. Yes, was it, and is it still? Yeah. I feel like everyone's ideas have changed on that. Yeah. Climate climate was a topic that has been interesting to me since high school. Actually, I did a lot of speech and debate competitions, and that was where I was first exposed to the topic. And I always thought, at the time, we didn't really call it climate. It was more energy and the environment were very interesting. And then when I first went to college, I listened to a talk by Dan Schrag, who ended up being my advisor. And I thought it was very influential. It was on the climate energy challenge. I ended up taking a class from him with that same topic and decided to study environmental science and design my whole career around it. So 
most of my internships, all of my real work experiences have all been in this energy climate nexus. And it's been interesting in the last few years, like you've said, to see that so many others are now starting to try and work in the space. People with all sorts of different talents that I think will be really useful. More people starting companies, more people who want to work at companies in the space, more pools of capital who want to fund climate startups, more funds being created, more investors. So I think it's really healthy for the ecosystem. I think the one warning I have is let's just make sure that we're funneling all of these resources to companies that are actually going to have a real chance of surviving and making a difference and not just throwing money at the problem a little bit arbitrarily because then we risk having mistakes like that first wave of clean tech and the 2008-2010 wave that temporarily moved money and people away from the sector because they were scared by a few big name failures. Right? So I think we have to manage to both deploy the capital and money and people wisely and efficiently and not make such big mistakes that we're going to scare others away. Interesting. Can you get, I, I didn't know any of these 2008 slash 2010 clean tech company failures. Do you want to yeah, give so us the full? I think the most famous one was Solyndra, which was a solar manufacturer that took government money and then ended up going bankrupt. And so there was a lot of criticism that the government was giving money to these companies that were not using it efficiently and that clean tech was going to be a waste of time and effort. I think some of the narrative also came before the last couple of years when Tesla has become such a big success that has many, many, many times over returned the money that was invested in it. I think there was a moment in time when there were a few big name bankruptcies in the climate space and not yet big winners. And so people started to run away from the space. This was maybe in the mid 20 teens. And the narrative has totally shifted in the last couple of years. But I think for those of us who saw that first wave of clean tech boom and bust, it makes us wary to understand as much as there is hype and excitement right now, that excitement and enthusiasm can go away as fast as it came. And so we have to manage it in such a way that it doesn't kind of end up being counterproductive. What's a good way to, you seem like an expert on this. Like teach me what's the best way to understand like climate, how it's changing and what solutions work and what don't. Because I'm guessing just stop oil doesn't, it's, yep. it, it's, if, it, if it's on a bumper sticker, but it doesn't do much. Yeah. Else. There's yeah. a number of books and resources on this. One that I would recommend is called Speed and Scale by John Doerr. So our team worked with John extensively. Actually, a couple of my colleagues are quoted in this book, but he really lays out an action plan for solving the climate crisis. He lays out how big the problem is, how many gigatons of carbon we need to reduce in each sector, and a pretty specific path and timeline for how we can get there. Okay. And is this the John Doerr that did Good to Great? I'm not sure if that was one of his books. Let me just check. I think that Good to Great was written by James Collins, it looks like. John Doerr wrote another book called Measure What Matters about OKRs. That's the one. No, that's, that's it. It was similar theme. That's the one I was thinking of. Okay. So when I... so. Go back to the, the climate thing. He, he's obviously, I'll definitely give his book a read. But for the lay audience, you know, for the average American, they think, why do I have to sacrifice my quality of life when I could, when China and India are producing all the carbon emissions? And everyone's been saying that 
you know, it's going to be global cooling, but now it's global warming and now it's climate change. And what do you know? I'm sitting in Colorado now and it's like snowing and it's meant to be, you know, autumn. You know, like there's plenty of reasons where people are significantly low trust in institutions, including government. And it feels combined with a sense of hopelessness associated with a lot of people when they think of climate. I think Michael Schellenberger talks about this, where the environmental movement has a doom and gloom approach to like campaigning, which is very different to the, like the civil rights movement, which is like the come and come and join us. Like we're changing the world in a positive world, and we've got this vision and be part of something big rather than like Val, are you really going to use that plastic straw? You know. I think the clear answer to this is there's kind of two ways that we're going to make big changes in terms of climate. One is if we develop technologies and businesses and products that make doing good for the environment also just a better life and better for people. So not trying to ask people to sacrifice, but making it so that your personal interests are in line with planetary interests. And so that's the way that you can scale. And so, for example, my team, we invest in climate tech companies that we believe are going to be profitable without additional government subsidies and also are doing something that's you know, reducing the amount of carbon use or reducing the amount of waste. But that's what allows things to grow because I really just don't think that altruism scales to a meaningful degree. And then I think the other option is at a societal level, we may need some regulation that kind of forces our hand that says we individually are not willing to make these sacrifices if we're not forced, but we collectively are willing to make this sort of systematic change that's going to shift us onto a trajectory that makes sense. I think that straws example is actually perfect. Like, I don't believe we solve the climate crisis by encouraging each other to use a certain type of straw or even not use a straw at all, right? Like, I think that that is in some ways the way that we get off track if we anger people by making it feel like too much ridiculous personal sacrifice for not that much gain. The personal sacrifice has to be either like clear, there has to be a clear ROI to it, or most ideally, let's create a world where we don't have to make those huge sacrifices. I mean, like, just to be more concrete about that, an example would be if you, like, we have a company that works on community solar projects. And if you sign up for community solar through them, you'll be transitioning your electricity to not be from fossil fuels, but rather from a new solar project. And it will actually be in many geographies cheaper than what you currently have. But you might need some sort of structure or incentive or just really like people helping you with the process to get you on board with that. And so companies that are able to sign people up could make a lot of money and then also do good for the world and help customers save money along the way. I really like that. You know, I'm a big, what I liked about Michael Schellenberger's work is he talks a lot about achieving, you know, left-wing goals with right-wing means and the biggest when i guess the big thing is like it's markets and technology you know i too am very salt on this idea of you know we've become the dominant species on the planet not because we have the biggest claws or the fastest legs it's because of our brains you know we've essentially made every single other animal our bitch and we've been able to do it just by solving every single problem that's come from how do we stay warm how do we keep away predators to how do we go to the moon are you ready for the rapid round yes i am have you done a? Have you taken a trip in a driverless Uber? 
I have not yeah. yet. I have tried a Waymo several years ago with a friend who was working there, but this was before it was a kind of commercial product, more just for employees only. Brilliant. And if you could live in another country in the world, where would it be? London is my biggest fascination. I, I guess that's not a country, but the United Kingdom. So very fascinated by London, Cambridge, that whole world. If you had done another career, what would it be? Probably academia or something related to a university setting. So I'm very interested in admissions per the conversation that we just had. I think that teaching would be very interesting. Something that allows me to stay at a university setting forever. How good. What technology would you, are you most excited about its development of? Hmm, it's a good question. So one of my favorite books is Atlas Shrugged. And in Atlas Shrugged, part of the premise is that there's this motor that's developed that generates cheap, easy, renewable electricity that powers the world. So I don't know that it's one specific technology, but I think that the closer and closer we get towards an energy system that is like this motor, where we harness the Earth's resources for abundant and cheap electricity, the more we can have everything else in our physical economy be easier and cheaper to operate. So nuclear? That could be the solution. I don't think it's an obvious answer that that has to be the one or even that it will work with our, within any short amount of time, but one potential option. I do think a lot of the fusion conversations feel kind of of the same ilk as the Atlas Shrug motor, but I don't think that's the only option. How much crypto do you own? Nothing directly. I have a few, I, I'm yeah, no direct crypto investments. I am invested in a startup and a fund that are kind of in the space. Nice. How do you think the Bay Area will be in five years time, better or worse than it is now? I think it will be very similar to the way it is right now. I don't believe in these catastrophe or renaissance type prophecies. My guess is that there will always be certain neighborhoods in San Francisco that are not great and certain neighborhoods that are up and coming and certain neighborhoods that are excellent. And then the exact ones will shift and who exactly lives there will shift. But ultimately, I think San Francisco will still be an exciting and imperfect place. You heard it here first. What's the worst bit of advice you've ever received? Maybe to play it safe and not take risks. I think that I grew up probably more risk averse than was optimal. And in some ways, maybe that was good at the time. But I try in almost every situation that I can now to take the path that will make things a little more exciting. What's the best compliment you've ever received? That I'm a very reasonable person. I think that there's a lot of people who have told me that, you know, like the things that I say and do make sense. I sometimes think I'm a little bit crazy. So I like when people tell me that it makes sense. And the final one, what always makes you smile? Something new. So I like adventure and novelty. And whenever I get to do me experience something that I haven't before, that's always really exciting to me. Valerie Shen. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was great to chat with you.